Good morning. My name is Brian Sorgenfry. I am, uh, for the past eight years, I've been an RUF campus minister at Mississippi State. And this summer, my family moved to Oxford, and we are now the RUF, I'm now the RUF campus minister at Ole Miss. And uh, so I guess you've been supporting me and my family for a few months now, but as I looked back at the giving history, Grace Van has been incredibly generous to RUF Ole Miss over the years. So hear me say thank you. Uh, we really consider ourselves, uh, when you, your ministry on the camps of Ole Miss, uh, to proclaim the gospel and reach students for Christ. Uh, so thanks for your faithfulness. Um, I went to college with one of Dr. Young's daughters, so I've always known how loud his voice is. Um, it's, it's amazing. We're going to look at Exodus 17 uh, this morning. If you have your Bibles, you can turn there. As you turn there, I, I want you to think about some, um, some very powerful lyrics from the great singer-songwriter James Taylor. In his song, Another Gray Morning, I think it's a fascinating description of someone trying to enter into the struggles and despair of a young mom with a young child, if you know what this feels like. Sometimes the wall's caving in on you as you don't get out of the house. Here's, here's the lyrics. <clears throat> Here comes another gray morning, a not-so-good morning after all. She says, well, what am I to do today with too much time and so much sorrow? She hears the baby waking downstairs. She hears the foghorn calling out across the sound. Repetition in the morning air is just too much to bear. And no one seems to care. She said, move me, move me. I'm locked up inside. She said, make me angry or make me cry. But no more gray mornings. I think I'd rather die. I think that's so powerful because it's honest. And it succinctly, I think, details the ordinary feelings of despair. Of those times where you look up in your life and you think, there's no way. There's no way this is how life is supposed to feel or look like. And I think most of us, if you're like me, when you imagine your life, when you imagine next year, you think of it as free from the ordinary frustrations and feeling of despair. But there's just tons of scenarios as you walk through the life, even the Christian life, you're a Christian, and you look up and think, there's no way this is where I'm supposed to be. There is no way this is how the Christian life is supposed to feel. And what I want to do in Exodus 17 is read together this passage where the Israelites, God's people, are brought to a place by God where they are tempted to despair, where they're tempted to think, there is no way that this is where we're supposed to be. So let me, uh, let me pray for us. Father, um, you love us. You love us so much that you've given us your words that we can know you. So I pray that uh, as we listen to your word, you would give us ears to hear and eyes to see the beauty of Jesus, that you would give us the gift of repentance and faith, and that most of all, we'd see the greatest gift that you've ever given us, which is your son, Jesus, and we'd embrace him. In your son's name I pray, amen. Here's the reading of uh, God's word, Exodus 17. All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages, according to the commandment of the Lord, and camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. And Moses said to him, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water, and the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried to the Lord, What shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, 
Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I'll stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel, and he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah, because of the quarreling of the people of Israel, and because they tested the Lord by saying, Is the Lord among us or not? The grass withers, the flowers fade. Word of our God, it stands forever. Okay, what I just want to do is look at two things with you this morning. The Israelites' problem, and hopefully therefore our problem, and also the Lord's remedy. First, the Israelites' problem, verse 1 through 4. We've got to get a sense of where the people of God are here. This is Exodus 17. So what is creating this complaining and grumbling? What's happened before here is this. Right here, God has faithfully brought what most people estimate to be close to a million people out of slavery of Egypt by the, by the miraculous crossing of the Red Sea, by all these plagues, by Passover. And they're now following the Lord through the wilderness who's leading them by a pillar of fire during the day and by a cloud during night. And that cloud stops at Rephidim, a million people. And they set up camp and look, Verse uh, 2, give us water to drink. Verse 3, they thirsted, there was no water. They look around, and there is no water. And I don't know, if you're like me, it's kind of easy to be smug towards the people in the Bible, and you think, I ain't come on. No water. But think about this. A million people, men, women, children, elderly people, out in a dangerous wilderness. And this is what you've got to picture. A mom holding an infant with parched throats, crying, and there is no water. Men looking at their elderly parents who are weak and hot in the middle of the wilderness. And verse 3, I love the way the New Living Translation puts it. Verse 3 says they are tormented with thirst, and they can see no water. Like, this is mama bear coming out. Like, this, you can feel the panic. It's not crazy. I'm not saying it's okay, but you get where this is coming from. And so what do they do? They get angry. And we've seen this mob mentality begin to form in panic. And so they stir each other up. And who are they angry towards? Well, they're angry at Moses, yes. But in verse 2 says, why do you test the Lord? Because Moses is simply God's representative. And so what they're really angry at is the Lord. Because he has led them here. And so in verse 3... Their anger finally boils over. Remember, mom's holding dehydrated babies. They are shouting, did you just bring us out here to kill us and our children? This is Israel's problem. They are in circumstances that are really scary, really dark. They think they're going to die. And I just want you to feel the weight of that. Because these are the people of God. And their thirst was real. And here's the deal. They are following where God leads them. It wasn't like they took a wrong turn. It wasn't like they quit following the cloud. They follow where God leads them, and there is no water to be seen. And they are tormented by thirst. And I start there because probably here is where many of you find yourselves this morning. Probably not physically thirsty, but you're in a place that is dark that you're tempted to despair, and it's real, and it's hard. And, and do not belittle the circumstance that you're in. That's our temptation. 
And maybe there's been... Um, Maybe there's been death or illness in your family and it's been acutely, acutely felt. And that grief is real and it's hard. And our culture gives you about two weeks to be sad and then they say get back to life and you know that's not true. You're months in and there's still days that you don't want to get out of bed because you can't believe that person's not there anymore. And this is how you begin to think. Really, Lord? This is how it's going to be? I followed you, and it feels like you're leaving me out here to die in despair. Or maybe something really dark is going on with one of your children, and the feeling is this. I I know I've made mistakes as a parent. I know I'm not a perfect parent, but I've tried to love my kids. I've tried to provide for them. I've tried to point them to Jesus. And my child is making decisions that are hurting him, that are embarrassing And that leads you in a place of of thirst. You don't need me to tell you that. Because you cry out. Have you just left my family out here to die? It feels like it. Now the people that I love most seem to be running from you. And you feel tormented. Or maybe you're you're in junior high, that place that none of us want to ever go back to. (laughs) And you feel despair there. Because there's been things that have happened to you that are hurtful. Things said to you, and you're lonely. And you think, really? Like I'm trying to follow God, and it feels like this. And I emphasize that the Israelites' thirst was real because the places that God has you is real as well. And and healing begins actually admitting that because our temptation is to belittle it and to say, oh, other people have it worse. Or we put on a face that that makes it look like everything's okay. But the Bible doesn't do that. The Bible says these places are real. The greatest category of psalms is actually psalms of lament, sorrow, brokenness. But here's where I'd like you to uh, consider that their biggest problem wasn't necessarily the circumstance they found uh, themselves in, though that was hard. Their problem was actually their response. It was this distrust and sin that came out of their hearts. And that's the question that I'd ask you to consider this morning. Whether you're a Christian this morning, whether you're trying to figure out what Christianity is, dark and tough circumstances are going to come your way. The question is, where do you turn with those? Or to whom do you turn? Because the temptation of dark circumstances is, I will do whatever it takes to get out of this. I don't care what it takes whether that's just putting on an unaffected face that downplays the circumstances going around you, that won't go well. Whether it's saying, oh, things aren't that bad, people have it worse. Or the temptation is to eject God from the scenario altogether and say he can't be a part of this. But he is. Or lastly, the temptation is to do what the Israelites do and end up in fear and sin by distrusting the Lord. And later on in Scripture, the psalmist will say, do not harden your hearts as Meribah. Referencing this, don't turn against the Lord. Don't get apathetic and callous. Amazingly, here's what's odd. The answer is to trust the one who led you to this place. Soften your heart to the one who has you in this dark circumstance. Now, that seems a little crazy sometimes. 
Sometimes in RUF, we sing this song called Dear Refuge of My Weary Soul. I don't know if you'll sing it here. I love how honest it is. Listen to this. It says, Oh, when gloomy doubts prevail, I fear to call thee mine. Think about that. When gloomy doubts prevail, I'm scared to call you mine. But the springs of comfort seem to fail and all my hopes decline. Yet, gracious God, where shall I flee? Thou art my only trust, and still my soul would cleave to thee, though prostrate in the dust. I love that. It says, where I am, sometimes it it seems crazy to trust you. (laughs) But I've got nowhere else to turn. Even as I'm prostrate in the dust, I will trust you. And so that's Israel's problem, and, and I think our problem is when we get in dark and tough circumstances, distrust comes out of our hearts. So what's the Lord's remedy? Okay, if the Israelites respond sinfully, here's what's amazing. Even amidst their sinful response, actually probably because of their sinful response, the Lord's goodness shines through. What does he do for the Israelites? Two things. First, God provides water. Think about this. This is who God is. I love this. He still gives them water. Because the goodness of God still shines through even though they don't trust him. If you think through Exodus, if you're familiar with this, it's not the first time that the Israelites complain and grumble about who is over them. Earlier in Exodus, they complain and grumble about Pharaoh. And how does he respond? He beats them, and he makes them work harder. And then they, right, they grumble and they complain against Moses. And what does Moses do? Moses just kind of throws up his hands and says, what are we going to do with these people? He's done with them. And so as they grumble and complain to the Lord, I don't know about you, but I expect the Lord to respond in this way. Okay, I'm done too. (laughs) Like I brought them out of Egypt. I saved them by miraculous power and they're still complaining. I'm done. But what is God's answer to tired and weary and rebellious people who accuse him of abandoning them? Here's what he says. He says, okay, Moses, let's go meet them. Let's go meet their need. Let's go provide them water. And he does. Even though they distrust him, even though they're sinful, he says, I'm still going to give them water. And this is one of those, how much more, if they can, can you and I come to God in need and trust him as a loving father? Will you believe that he will provide? I'm not saying there's not lonely Christians out there or starving Christians or parents with children who are lost. But I am saying that you can ultimately trust the Lord, that he will provide what you ultimately need. Now, it might not be in the timing that we want, and it might not be in the places that we want. I don't think any Israelite thought that water was going to come from a rock, but that's where he gave it to them. And many times you'll find the things that you need come from unexpected places in times that you didn't expect. I mean, I, I realize I work on a college campus, but How many times have I seen students in college because of their loneliness, because of of friendships broken, because they couldn't find good friends, that they ended up finding real friendship in places they never thought that they would find it, with people they never looked for? I've seen students that because of divorce in their family, because of brokenness in their family, They found mothers and fathers and friends in the church that they otherwise never would have found. My wife has a friend who, because of the miserable divorce that she went through, 
she ended up finding friends that she never knew that she had. And if you've been a Christian for any amount of time, you know that it is not apart from our sin and failure, but through our sin and failure that we realize how gracious and merciful God actually is. And so the Lord does here change their circumstances and provides water, and he remedies it, and he can remedy yours. But knowing and trusting the Lord for who he is means that you can ask for circumstantial change, and he might give it to you. But if it doesn't come immediately or from where you think, you can still trust him. You can trust him. I can trust that what I ultimately need, which is inner transformation, transformation of the heart, not necessarily transformation of circumstances, God will provide. So first, he he actually provides water. Second of all, he provides himself. This is the best part. I wish we had more time for this, but we're going to have to be quick. Edmund Clowney, old professor uh, at Westminster, he unlocks the jewel of this passage. See, what is going on in Exodus 17 is more than just run-of-the-mill frustration and grumbling. What's going on here is actually they are bringing legal charges against God. Everything in here is courtroom language. In verse 7, when when Moses names the place Meribah, that Hebrew word literally means to bring a charge. It's courtroom language. He names it Meribah because this is where a legal proceeding happened. That's why Moses in verse 4 says, they're ready to execute me, stone me, right? Because what he's saying is, God, they are charging me and you with murder. They can't get to you, God, so they're going to kill me. That's what's going on here is the people of God are looking at God and saying, we're bringing you to court because you've broken covenant. You are not taking care of us like you promised to. And they're pressing legal charges, if you've ever seen any kind of, right, whether it's Law and Order or A Few Good Men or any kind of movie that has court, or if you've been in court, you know this. A courtroom itself is set up in such a way that when you walk into that place, even the way the furniture is arranged, it's, it's speaking out this. This is a place that things are going to get sorted out. This is a place where we'll figure out who's at fault and justice will come. And so when the Israelites ask for a trial, a courtroom, the Lord says, All right, set it up. If you want a trial, we'll have a trial. And so he tells Moses to take two things. First, he says, bring some elders with you. Courtroom language. Elders were the witnesses of the court. And so now, Israelites who accuse God, they're watching Moses set up a court. And then what does he tell them? He says, bring your your rod, your staff. Why the staff? It tells you because it's what he struck the Nile with. You see, previously in Exodus, the Israelites always saw the the staff of Moses do something. It would always judge the Egyptians, right? He'd say, let my people go. Pharaoh would say, no. He would strike the Nile. It turned to blood. He'd hold up the staff. It would part the Red Sea, which ended up being salvation for uh, for the Israelites, but it judged the Egyptians and killed them. And so over and over again, the staff is a symbol of God's presence, his perfect justice that he brings. So when that staff goes up, justice is coming. So my seminary professor put it this way, and look, you've heard people flippantly use this kind of language. I'm not being flippant at all. This is reverent. 
This is literally the damning stick of God. That's what would happen. When Moses raised the staff, it was the damning stick of God that brought the judgment. So this is where you've got to imagine the scene. People are mad. People are panicking and grumbling against God, accusing God. They see a trial being set up, and here comes Moses with the staff. Can you imagine what what must have happened amongst that crowd as the damning stick of God comes out? A different panic sets in, don't you think? Not about their thirst, but about, oh no, what's about to happen? They've only seen that staff used on, on their enemies, the Egyptians. Now they're accusing God and in walks Moses with the staff. Don't you know what they're thinking? This is it. All right, the Lord's about to end it right here. We're finally going to get what we deserve. It's called up to us. Do you ever have those days growing up? I, I did way, way too often where things got so bad around the house that my mom looked at me and said, we're just going to have to wait for dad to get home on this one. You know that feeling as you waited for dad to get home uh, and then the door opened and you're like, man, this is not going to be good. That had to be the feeling as the staff was coming. They had to start thinking, we've finally blown it enough. God has finally realized what kind of people he actually rescued. And our life is catching up to us. He's disappointed in who we are. And I think that's true of a lot of us. That when hard and difficult circumstances come, this is the double suffering. Deep down inside you feel this. I knew it. I knew it. At some point, life was going to catch up with me. I don't read my Bible enough. That sin that I've been struggling with is still there. I'm not the Christian I thought, thought I would be. And the hammer is dropping. And life is catching up to me. I'm finally getting what I deserve. I've been found out. God knows that I'm a fraud. Nobody else knows, but deep down inside, I know what my life is like. And life is catching up to me. And that guilt, that notion of the Lord being frustrated with you, being against you, that's actually the double suffering of dark situations. Because I'm going to come back to it. It's actually not true, but it doubles the suffering. But here's what happens. This is incredible. God shows up. Did you notice this? He comes to the trial, and he stands on a rock at Horeb, verse 6. He stands there as the accused party in the chair, And what does Moses do? He brings down the staff, the damning stick of God, not on the fearful, sinful, rebellious Israelites. It strikes the rock where the Lord is. And everybody watches as judgment is executed, not on the grumbling people, but on the Lord. And water, life comes gushing out. It's an amazing picture. Here's what I want you to think about. How good is God? Look at the trial. Look at the accusation that they actually make against the Lord. And think about what they accuse him. They accuse the Lord of abandoning a million people in the wilderness and leaving them to die of thirst. They accuse him of basically being a kind man who brings them out into the wilderness and lets them die. Now I want you to think about that. That accusation, if you heard of this event, no matter what culture, no matter what time period, 
If you heard of someone who conned a million people to, to follow him out into the wilderness, and all the while he was planning to let them all die by thirst and dehydration and starvation, men, women, elderly, infants, if that really happened, what would you say that person deserved? It doesn't matter what culture. It doesn't matter what time period. Here's what people would say. If somebody conned a million people into something like that, here's what that guy should deserve. He should suffer greatly. He should know what it feels like to be taken from his home and made to wander around. He should be paraded in front of the very people that he promised to save. And they should be able to say whatever they want about him. They should be able to mock him. They should be able to shout at him. They should be able to spit upon him. He needs to feel the evil of what he's done. And then, and then they'd probably say every one of his possessions needs to be taken. Because he, he needs to know what it's like to have nothing. And then he needs to be executed publicly in a very painful way so everybody watches. And the whole time, he certainly never needs to be given a drink. Because he needs to feel the parched throat and, be, and die while being tormented by thirst. And then probably after he dies, he needs to go straight to hell. That would be the sentiment of any culture of any time period for someone who conned and orchestrated a horrific death of a million people. And realize this, right here in Exodus 17, it's as if God says in front of everyone, you're right, you're right. That sounds fair. So strike me. Even though I've been nothing but good to you, strike me. And don't you see who is standing on the rock? The Apostle Paul comments on this passage thousands of years later. 1 Corinthians 10, here's what he says. They all ate that same spiritual food and drank that same spiritual drink. For the, they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. It's the second person of the Trinity standing on the rock as the accused party. The Son of God shows up. And sure enough, thousands of years later, what's going to happen? Jesus is going to leave the place of comfort and wander in this broken world. He will say, I have no place to lay my head. He will then be paraded out in front of the very people that he promised to save. And they'll laugh at him, and they'll mock him, and they'll spit upon him, and they'll beat him. He'll be made to suffer horrifically, beaten to almost the point of death. And then... He'll be sentenced to a painful execution, hung on a cross, and he'll certainly be given no water. As he'll cry out, I thirst, and he dies of public humiliation. And then he goes straight to hell, right? Taking the wrath of God, crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he dies. Why? Why does he do that? It's not because the Israelites' accusation was actually right. It's not because the Lord is a con man. No, it's because we're the frauds. We're the con men. We're the ones who profess to follow God, but in a way that we just love other things. We're the ones who use people rather than love people. We're the problem, not the Lord. But the God says, okay, I'll sort it out. And I'll take the punishment you deserve on myself. He bring, this is who God is. He brings the judgment, yes, but on himself. Jesus did not come to execute judgment on us. He came to bring it on himself. 
Whatever's going on in your life, if you're in Christ, it's not because things are finally catching up to you. Jesus took it. And Jesus is saying, somehow, even in these dark and, and gray mornings, even if not immediately changing your circumstances through that pain, through that loneliness, through that sin, I'm sorting things out in your heart. And because you can know I'm for you, he's changing self-pity into thankfulness, self-absorption into selflessness. And you can begin to know that even amidst sin, even amidst death, even amidst ordinary gray mornings, the Lord is with you. He cannot be against you. That's impossible. He suffered the ultimate judgment for you 2,000 years ago. And his intimacy and his being for you takes away fear and brings trust even on gray mornings. And so I'll end with this. There was a um, story I heard about, about from a friend of mine who, back when he was in seminary becoming a pastor, look, when you're in seminary, you have to, depending on where you are, you have to do something called an internship. So they make you actually go out and be with people so you're not just sitting in a classroom and so like most of us, when it was time for ordination, you realize I haven't done any of the internships. You scramble out and spend three months trying to, trying to do the checklist. And one of the things that, that you had to do is you had to go visit nursing homes. And so a friend of mine was out there visiting nursing homes, um, and he ended up in, uh, in this one nursing home on Mother's Day, and he had brought roses to kind of hand to the mothers. And he went back to the back part of the nursing home, uh, which is where a lot of the mentally ill people were, where the people without resources were. It was nasty and smelly. And he finds this one lady who's sitting in her bed. She has a, she has a deformed face. Uh, it smells. And he hands her a rose and says, Happy Mother's Day. And she turns to him and says, Thank you. Will you go hand this to somebody else that can appreciate it? I'm blind. I can't see it. And when you give it to them, will you tell them that it's from Jesus? So, you know, he, he went and he did that. And that whole week, he could never get that woman uh, off his mind. He kept thinking about how she was just sitting in this dark, musty, smelly room blind. And said, give the rose to someone who can, who can appreciate it. Her name was Mabel. So the next Sunday, he went back to find her. He was on a mission. He went back there. He finds Mabel, still sitting in the bed, still dark, still smelly. And he just said, Mabel... I've been thinking about you. I don't understand. What do you do all day? How do you pass the hours? And here's what she said, very slowly, very deliberately. I think about Jesus. And he said, I love this. He was honest. He said, I sat there and thought, what does she think about Jesus? Like, I can't think about Jesus for more than like three minutes before my mind wanders to whatever else, right? And so he said, what do you think about Jesus? And here's what he said. She replied very slowly, I think about how good he's been to me. He's been awfully good to me, you know. I'm one of those kind that's mostly satisfied. Lots of folks wouldn't care much for what I think. Lots of folks think I'm kind of old-fashioned, but I don't care. I'd rather have Jesus. He's all the world to me. You see, there's the remedy for trusting Jesus. He's the point. She made the flip. Most of us view Jesus through our circumstances and our dark situations. She made the flip. And she kept Jesus in the foreground and viewed her circumstances that are real and sufferings through the grace and love of Jesus. And realized whatever's going on in my life, it can't be because he's against me. He loves me. 
And that's how I'd leave you this morning. No matter where you are, no matter what's going on, Jesus, he came to save. He did not come to ruin you. He did not come to shame you. He did not come to disappoint. He came to take away shame. He came to be ruined himself so that you can be healed. And that does. It slowly pushes back bitterness. It slowly brings hope amidst sorrow. And you can trust him even on, even on gray mornings. Isn't that good news? That's an invitation. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word for Exodus 17, for things that we just, we just couldn't make up. We couldn't imagine. But you were so good that you would take our place, not just on a rock, but on a cross 2,000 years ago. You take the punishment for our grumbling and our complaining. You take the punishment for our finding life in everything but you. And so I pray that you'd help us to trust you. Trust that you came to save, to heal, not to shame and ruin. In your son's name I pray.